is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here. And we love to tell your stories, too, and this one got sent to us along by a listener. And this is just one of those great stories about our country, its character, and you don't hear enough of these stories, and, well, we wanted to bring it to you. And joining us to tell his story is Chris Williams, and he lives in Conroe, Texas, 45 minutes north of the city of Houston. And, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. And, Chris, before we talk about what brought your story to our attention, tell us a little bit about your life, where you were born, your parents, uh, what, were, what were the important things to them, and uh, just a bit about your early life. I was born and raised in Louisiana, actually 60 miles south of New Orleans in a place called Point O'Hash. And, um, you know, my, my parents were people that just kind of helped people. They went out of their way to help people. And so we could be dressed up to go somewhere, go to church, whatever. And if somebody was broken down on the side of the road, my dad would stop and try to, to help them uh, fix the car or, or get to where they needed to go. And so they were just, in the end, you were watching their generosity in action pretty much most of your life. Yeah, definitely. I, we, we always had somebody living with us, and uh, I continued that tradition uh, with, with my family. Uh, we've always had uh, exchange students and people that needed a place to stay living with us, and it's great now to see my, my girls are grown, and they're continuing to do the same with, uh, with their family. So that's, that's amazing to me. So giving had just become a part of your DNA. And uh, let's talk about this thing that you just decided to start and what led to it. Talk about God's Garage. Well, God's Garage was, was born in my little garage at the house, and I just wanted to be able to help people that, uh, that needed help with their cars and couldn't afford to, to get them repaired. Um, and, and that was kind of born out of it. There were years where I couldn't afford parts for my cars, and I would just pray that the thing would run and get me to work and get me home every day. And I thought, man, one day I'm going to help people. And, and so that's what we did. We, we just started trying to help people out. And transportation is the lifeblood for so many people. And there's not a lot of help in that space. I mean, your car either runs or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, boy, you're in a world of hurting. So, Chris, sure. you, you start God's Garage. How do, how do people start to find out about it? Do you remember your very first... Uh, your first person that you were able to bring help to and, and, and just help out in this endeavor. And then what happened next? We, um, we helped a few people for, through word of mouth, um, but the, the big one came when I was on my way home from church one Wednesday night. It was dark and raining hard, and I could barely make out a couple people walking on the side of the road. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if they'll get in the car with me and let me give them a ride. And they got in. Well, it was a single mother and her daughter, um, and they were uh, on the way to their house, and, and I, I said, what are you guys doing? What, why are you walking in the rain? And they said, well, the truck's in the shop. And as we talked, found out the truck had been in the shop for three months. And I said, why is the truck still in the shop? And I was kind of getting mad at the mechanic for not releasing the car yet, and uh, she hung her head and said, we can't afford to, to, to fix it. And so that just broke my heart, and, and that really started us uh, in a... In a, a Sort of, sort of a more concerted effort to do more. And we built a shop at my uh, new house, uh, a 40 by 40 building, and we brought her truck in, fixed her truck up, and gave it back. And that really started the ball rolling. Um, there was, uh, there's been so many people that uh, there's great stories that, that we've helped. Um, and it's, it's just 
it's a blessing to me and to the guys that work with us to be able to do what we do. Blesses us as much as them. And how many people are you helping now? How many? Tell, tell us about the, the shop. Um, how many people are employed there? Uh, and how many people you're, you're helping at this point? Right now, we uh, have about 20 mechanics. Um, we are all volunteers. We have about 20 people on a cook team that uh, rotate and cook for us on the nights that we work. We usually, during the day, Monday through Friday, we have four, five, sometimes six guys working all day. And then Monday nights and Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, we have up to a dozen guys working until 9 o'clock or so. Um, so we have a, a lot of people helping out. We have a vetting team that goes through the applications. This year, we've given 41 cars away. So far, we're about to give about 10 more away before the end of the year. And next year, our, uh, our plans are to double that. We want to give away 100 cars next year. We've also repaired a bunch of cars as well. So we do the two things. We repair vehicles for single mothers, widows, and wives of deployed military, and we give cars away to single mothers, widows, and wives of deployed military. And, you know, there's a the quote that I just loved from you that I bumped across that said there was a time when you found yourself short on money and long on car troubles. And I guess <laughs> yeah. in the end, that, that's an empathetic power you have in all these volunteers. And my goodness, these volunteers, they have jobs during the day, right? Yeah, we have uh, everyone from teenagers after school to retirees to guys who are working full-time jobs and then come in at night and, and work at night. Uh, we have guys who do shift work, and when they're not on their shift, instead of being home and lazing around, they actually come and, and volunteer their time. It's a great thing. And they feel better about it, too. I mean, this is the thing about giving. I mean, it's you know, you're, you're giving to other people, but what you're getting in return, uh, Chris, talk about that. Man, uh, you know, we live in a selfish world uh, where we're bombarded with, with these uh, thoughts that you're number one and take care of yourself and put yourself first. And when we do that, uh, when we have problems and situations that arise, uh, they tend to be all-consuming, and they take us over. Well, when we get outside of ourselves and we try to help somebody else, our problems diminish. Uh, they're not so big anymore. And it's funny, you know, when we help other people, sometimes the things that we say to them and the things that we do for them uh, leads to some, some changes in our own lives. And, and what I just told that person that they needed to do, gee, I kind of need to do that too. Uh, so it's 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 a, a great thing for you to be able to refocus your energies in your life on on others instead of just on yourself. Well, hold that thought, Chris. When we come back, I want to talk about two particular stories, and then I want to share with the folks where they can go to help you and what you do. And that's www.godsgaragecar.com, www.godsgaragecar.com. And when we come back... More with Chris Williams of God's Garage in Conroe, Texas. And that's just 45 minutes north of Houston. His story, and my goodness, this is so many American stories. We're a good country and we're a caring country. These stories here on Our American Stories.
Lovely Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Chris Williams, and this is just a great generosity story. It's a great American story, and God's garage in Conroe, Texas, is what he started, and it started with just an idea, I want to help people, and this is a space where people really need help, and not enough people are hitting this space, and it's transportation, and not everybody lives in a big city where you can get on a bus and actually get where you need to go. The car is such a fundamental part of our lives, and without a reliable one, boy, life can get tough. And we heard Chris tell a story about that single mom and her daughter whose truck had been in a shop for three months. And she was, it sounded, Chris, like she was ashamed to admit that it had been there. And it sounded like you almost had to get that out of her. And there's a lot of shame involved in this, isn't there, Chris? There is. Uh, when, when you don't have reliable transportation, you go through the normal channels. You start with your family. Hey, can I, can I borrow a ride? Can you take me here or there? Um, after a while, they get pretty exhausted helping you out. And so you, you turn to your friends. And after a while, they get tired as well. So when we are able to repair a car for someone or, or give them a car, we're not just giving them transportation. We're restoring dignity and, and giving them uh, a, a new independence with respect. They can take care of uh, their, their needs without begging and borrowing. And so it's, it's a big life change for a lot of these ladies that we help. Indeed. And let's talk about a few stories in particular. Tell us about Susan and her special needs daughter. And Susan, uh, she came to us, uh, she filled out an application, and and we brought her out. And we actually had a news crew from a local television station come out. And we, we wanted to interview her as part of the process. And so we did so and showed her the garage. Well, what she didn't know is that we actually had the vehicle ready to give her. And so we gave it to her on, on live TV. Um, fast forward, uh, the gentleman, the, the reporter that did the story came back to me and he said, I've never done this. I've never gone back and, and done a follow-up on my stories in all of these years. But I'll, can, I, can I follow up? And I said, sure. Well, he had interviewed Susan at the, the onset before we gave her the car, um, met her daughter, and spent a little bit of time with her. When he went back to interview her, he, he actually spent the day with her. He came straight from that interview to me, and he said, do you understand what's happened with this lady? And I said, well, she's, uh, she's volunteering now at the garage. She's helping out with things, and, uh, yeah, she's, she's got freedom and, and independence. He says, no, you don't understand the change that has been made in this lady. I interviewed her. I'm a good judge of people, and she wasn't faking. She's a different person now. She has purpose. She has a sense of direction. She's telling everybody that she knows about the garage and what it can do for people, and she's, she's you guys' biggest fans, but she's a different person. And so that just warms my heart uh, to just see the change in people. Indeed. And, you know, one of the great pastors in this country in the 20th century is Rick Warren. And his book was The Purpose Driven Life. And for so many people, when you don't have that purpose, Chris, that's how we can get lost. Talk about another story, Lisa from the Salvation Army Shelter. Tell her story for us. Lisa filled out an application and uh, we, we vetted her. We talked to her on the phone and she came out. We were able to give her a car, but her story is uh, is something that you don't normally hear, uh, but that happens frequently. She is a uh, degreed, college-educated lady, succinct, articulate, well-dressed, uh, well-put-together. She came down for a job in Houston at a hotel chain. The hotel put her up in, in a suite, 
and um, provided for her car and, and necessities, and she was doing very well running the hotel uh, until the hotel was sold. And the new owners came in and fired everyone and said they were starting with their own people. So she found herself not only without a job, but without a place to live. Uh, after a, a few weeks had gone by and she'd, she'd stayed with friends and, and uh, run out of places to stay, she found herself in the Salvation Army. She ended up losing her car as she scrambled to find a new job. What a situation to find herself in after doing the things that we're supposed to do. She went to college. She got good grades. She, she went after a career in, in hotel management and found herself in a shelter. And she said, I never thought I'd find myself here. We gave her a car. She's been able to get a, a new job, uh, a new lease on life, and she's flourishing. Uh, again, this is, this is a life change for people. It's not, it's not a handout. Uh, it's, it's just a help out. And so what a, what a blessing to do this. Yeah, and we forget all of us who have that help readily available through social capital, through family, through a church, through a network. Um, we, I think many of us take that for granted, Chris. Talk about faith, and it's God's garage, obviously, but talk about the faith of the volunteers, you. What part did faith play in this? Well, it was a, uh, it was a big deal for me to, at the, uh, the, the end of last year, beginning of this year, to say, I'm going to go work full-time at this garage where there's no money. <laughs> there's no salary, there's no paycheck. But I, we felt like God was orchestrating this, and, and this was the time, and so we stepped out there. Uh, we call it God's garage because it's His. It's, it's uh, His blessings that we're just stewarding. Uh, it's not ours. It's not, it's not Chris's workshop. Um, so all of the, uh, the, the, the glory, if you will, goes to God. Um, the kudos goes to God, not to us. And, and then, as well, all of the uh, provisions, they have to come from God. Uh, we can't conjure up the money uh, ourselves, and, and so he provides that as well. So, yeah, faith is a, is a major thing for us. We, uh, we want to present our lives as a, uh, a testimony of, of how God's working through situations in our lives and what's going on. And so the guys that work with us, we develop relationships with, and we're able to, to minister to each other. The ladies that we help, we're able to minister to. Um, so faith is a, a major part of this. Yeah, you've got, in essence, a head and body shop, a gear shop, a bunch of gear guys have a ministry, Chris. Yes, yes. It's just beautiful. And tell me this, what, what was your family's reaction when you said, this is where the Lord's calling me, because that's how so many Christians talk to their family. This is where he wants me to go. And I've, I've heard some things like that from friends, and I go, are you sure that's what he wears? Are you sure that's where he wants you to go? Yeah. You know, my family was great because we've led a, a faith-led life, um, and my wife uh, thankfully has a, a good job. Uh, so she was on board and, and said, yes, this is what we're supposed to do. Yes, leave your great paycheck behind. Uh, and I was doing ministry. I was, I was pastoring, been pastoring for years. Um, so it's not like I was uh, trying to, to get out of a secular position, if you will, and get into a religious position or anything like that. Uh, but this was what we were supposed to do, and so we went for it. Uh, most of my friends are very supportive. They've seen God uh, in action in my life and realize that uh, when I say, you know, I'm, I'm following God's leading here, that, that it must be okay. It's going to work out. Uh, I've got a couple of friends that are kind of, you're doing what? for, And you don't get paid? How does that work? <laughs> so we, we've made adjustments, and, and we're doing what we need to do to make it work. Um, 
but again, what, I, mean, I can't explain to you how great the blessing is to do what we get to do, to work with the guys that, that are selfless and volunteering. And I'll tell you, almost all of our volunteers not only give a, a lot of their time, they give financially as well. Uh, and it just tells you how, how amazing this ministry is. That, is. that is an amazing story. You're looking to give away 100 cars next year, and that's on yeah. top of the countless repairs you do uh, for all the folks in need. And please, if you want to give or you want to learn more, go to www.godsgaragecar.com. That's godsgaragecar.com. And a final thought, Chris, for Folks who are on the fence that they feel like they are being called to do something. And, yeah, they've got to have that really awkward conversation with the wife or the wife has to have that conversation with the father and the kids. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk them off the fence if you can, Chris. I'll tell you, if if you feel like you're supposed to do something that you feel like God's leading you to do it, and it doesn't make sense to a lot of other people, but you still feel so strongly about it, that's obviously God. Uh, we know that you're, you're not going to go do something good uh, because the, the devil wants you to do it. <laughs> so, and if, it, and if, it's, if there's some, uh, some pushback on it, well, you know what? If I feel this strongly about it, then God must be in it, and I'm just going to open or go through open doors where they're open. Um, the other thing I, I do want to say is do something for someone else, no matter how small, no matter how big. Do something for somebody else. Get together with another person or five other people and do something good for somebody. Uh, because on our own, we can do some really cool things. But when we get together as a group, oh, my gosh, we can accomplish so much. But don't hold back. Don't wait for the one day. If I win the lottery or if I do this or that, do it now. Do something. Indeed. And great words. And again, we're talking to Chris Williams, his story God's Garage, not Chris's, God's, God's Garage in Conroe, Texas, about 45 minutes north of the great city of Houston. Chris Williams' story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. And as you can imagine, with the extreme nature of the sport, snowboarding, when it started, caught on really fast. Its popularity skyrocketed when a young East Coast college grad made some innovative designs that have lasted to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler to tell us the story of the one, the only, Jake Burton, and the sport that became a worldwide phenomenon. The scores in. It's the return of the king in the men's 
Snowboarding is now a well-established sport and has come in leaps and bounds. White is the new gold. With its own culture, superstars, and equipment, competitions and events have become international staples. Snowboarding has evolved into different styles, including alpine racing, freestyle, free riding, backcountry, and more. But where did it all begin? Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. It began in 1965 with the Snurfer. The Snurfer was invented by a Muskegon, Michigan engineer named Sherman Poppin. This contraption was a monoski. Two skis strapped together and ridden with both feet facing forward in the direction in which you are traveling. Like a skateboard or a surfboard, it had no binding. And like a sled, it had a rope attached to the nose to help with the steering. Ironically, skateboarding was birthed in a similar spirit when in the 1950s, kids attached roller skate wheels to small boards that they steered by shifting their weight. Here's Sherman Poppin discussing the birth of his snurfer. I developed the snurfer on Christmas Day uh, 1965 as a toy for my kids. And the motivation was uh, I lived on the shore of Lake Michigan and always uh, wished I could surf, but we never really had good waves. Anyway, I had these old Kresge skis and I put them together and we started riding perpendicular to the direction of travel, which is part of the patent. It turned out that it was an absolute blast. And my wife watched us through the window and she said, you know, that is really a fun thing. And that night, uh, she dreamed up the name Snurfer, which is a contraction of the word snow and surf. It was my dad who was out playing with us in the dunes who put the tether on. He'd fall down and the board would go down the hill. And he says, this is stupid. And I said, I agree. So the tether got on. Two purposes. One, you could just hang on to it so you wouldn't lose the board when you fell off. The other thing was you could sort of pull on it and swing it and literally steer. The motion's exactly the same as riding a, uh, the board today. Poppin patented the Snurfer in 1966, and in February 1968, he began holding snow surfing competitions at a Michigan ski resort every winter that attracted enthusiasts from all over the country. A year after Poppin patented the Snurfer in Cedarhurst, New York, the life of 13-year-old Jake Burton Carpenter started to unravel. Jake's older brother George was killed in Vietnam. And a few years later, his mother died as well. Jake even ended up getting expelled from his boarding school. Here's Jake Burton. I mean, I was a wise and when I was young, and to a fault. And when I got kicked out of Brooks was a school, and I went up to see the headmaster who was a headmaster when my father was there and when my brother was there. It was brutal. I mean, my dad made me get in the car, go five hours, see this guy, you know, for a five-minute conversation, and then a long drive home. And that is when I decided to turn my life around and start applying myself to whatever the hell I did. In 1968, the 14-year-old Burton was one of the thousands of kids who purchased a snurfer for 10 bucks and was hooked. 
It became such an obsession that the 10 years and 100 prototypes later, Jake Burton Carpenter produced the Burton Backhill, one of the first snowboards he built with his saber saw out of his apartment on the Upper East Side of New York City. As for the name of his board, Jake figured Burton was a better brand name than Carpenter. Fresh out of college with a degree in economics from NYU, Jake traveled with his snowboard creation to Poppins National Snurfing Championship in Muskegon, Michigan in 1979. There were protests about Jake entering a non-snurfer board, so a modified open division was created and was won by Jake as the sole entrant. That race was considered the first competition for snowboards and is the start of what we now know as competitive snowboarding. Here's Poppin. When we had our contests, the college kids were, this was sort of like the hula hoop among college kids. They just took it over because it would run on one or two, three inches of snow. And there's a little ski area in Michigan, north of Grand Rapids called Pando. And Pando let, uh, let us have one offbeat chair for five hours when we run our contests and downhill and slalom. And, and uh, that's the way it was. And in 1979, 14 years later, uh, Jake showed up at one of our downhill slalom things. And he had snurfers, but he'd put a little piece of inner tube over to slip your sorrel under. That's how it all got started. Is, is, uh, that was the beginning. And uh, he and on the East Coast and Tom Sims on the West Coast were developing them at the same time. In an interview with Snowboarder Magazine, Burton paid full respects to his West Coast competition, stating, without Tom Sims to compete with in every sense and vice versa, snowboarding wouldn't be where it is today. Here's Jake Burton being interviewed in 1980. How'd you get into it? Well, uh, a company called uh, Brunswick Corporation used to make something called a snurfer a long time ago, and I rode those for about the last 10 years, and nobody really improved it. And living back east and just sort of getting flustered with that particular board, I just decided to start making something on my own. In 1977, when Burton began making his own boards, he thought he would get rich quickly. He opened Burton Boards in southern Vermont. He had a logo contest and his sister-in-law won five bucks for coming up with the mountain logo that Burton still uses to this very day. Here's what Burton told Inc. Magazine. I don't know if I really understood supply and demand. People were like, a skateboard for the snow? I was a punky kid and my dad, who was always in my corner, said that I never finished anything. That was it. I wanted to prove him wrong. But in the second year of Burton's snowboarding company, things went from bad to worse. Here's Burton. I mean, I was like Willie Loman, and I was a traveling salesman, and I would load up my car. It was a Volvo wagon at the time, and I remember once going out with... 38 snowboards, and I drove around New York State and visited dealers, and I went out with 38, and I came home with 40. Because one guy had given me two back. Burton decided to stop worrying about immediate profitability and focused instead on cultivating the sport of snowboarding itself. In 1991, he began sponsoring the world's best snowboarders. 
And like the Steinway Piano Company, who uses the feedback from sponsored pianists to improve their product, Burton demanded honest feedback from his sponsored athletes in order to better his design. Burton also began marketing his sport to the ski resorts, who were almost unanimous in blacklisting the snowboard from its slopes. And what an insight by Jake Burton. Create demand for your product by inventing an American sport, which he did. And when we come back, more of the story, this entrepreneurial story, this sports story, Jake Burton's story, here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week, and it'll be really easy for you to get to the podcast and listen. Again, subscribe to our newsletter. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. When we come back, the rest of Jake Burton's story. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Jake Burton. We ended with Burton deciding to put his snowboard product on pause and instead focus on cultivating the sport itself. Here's Greg Hengler with more of the story. Here's Steve Hayes, Burton team rider from 1984 to 1995, and professional snowboarder Tina Basich. One of the the key things I think... um that um, besides Burton and going from resort to resort and, uh, and working with the marketing managers and general managers of the resorts was um, actually Eastern Edge was one of the, the magazines here that had a, a blacklist and they would put every resort that didn't allow snowboarding on the blacklist. But it was, it was different because uh, the group of riders back then were, you know, not necessarily outcasts, but, you know, everybody had, was, had their own you know, colorful personality. Whether it was long hair and listening to hardcore rock or whatever it was, it was it was definitely a, a different edge. And uh, you weren't doing it um, because you might get uh, a million dollar contract with Burton or one of these other sponsors that are out there. Um, there was no um, banner patrol and there wasn't a VIP lounge and a rider's lounge and a, you know, sponsor's area. It was all strictly in one room. And um, it was a, a group of you know, surfers, skateboarders, and snowboarders getting together and, uh, and having this contest. We didn't have edges. We had fins on our boards. Some people weren't riding with high backs. We were inventing our equipment as we went every year. Tricks were being invented. We were crossing stuff over from skateboarding. And it was just an exciting time, and it will never be like that again. Here's editor of Snowboarder Magazine, Pat Bridges. Skiing and snowboarding in the 80s, it was a scary place. Lawyers ruled the day. And introducing something new to that environment was not welcome. And he took it upon himself as a challenge, and he literally did the legwork, went door to door, and sold our sport. You know, granted, you could question the motivations, be like, yeah, well, he's motivated by money, he wants to grow a sport, this, any other thing. Well, regardless of his motivations, 20 years later, there's 10 million snowboarders in the United States who rip, reap the benefits of that. You know. The daunting task of selling the sport of snowboarding to the ski resort gatekeepers cannot be exaggerated. Here's a news report 
from 1985, exemplifying the Herculean task Burton was up against. Because they're missiles. They cause, they cause nothing but problems, those things do. This is what all the fuss is about. It's like snow surfing. It's been around for almost a decade in the United States, and now it's becoming the trendy thing to do on our local ski slopes. But the operators of the hills want them off. Uh, the skiers, we try and keep them separated, but the s snowboards come down the slopes, and they'll go right in between the skiers, and we'll kick them off, and they'll just lip us off. And they're dangerous, because if one of these uh, skateboards or ski boards, whatever they're called, hit a person, they'd break their leg because they're just like a missile. And most of them have no brakes on them. So uh, nobody is allowing them on any of the mountains around. But where there's a will, there's always a way. Ski hill operators refuse to let anyone with a snowboard onto the chairlift. So they have to hike to the top of the mountain and then find a secluded ski trail where they won't get caught. The ski patrol says it's got its hands full. Quite a, quite a lot of them are uncooperative, smart alecks. You know, you go up and approach them in a very calm, collect manner, and they, they tend to lip you off. You ask them very nicely to leave, that they're endangering the public and possibly themselves. And they, uh, they swear at you, they tell you to get lost, mind your own business. So it's quite a problem for us, really. Do you see any compromise in the future at all? No. No, skiing is becoming more and more popular, and uh, if these boards become more and more popular, it's going to be more hassles, um, more confrontation. So we just like to say that we don't want them at all. Contrary to what ski patrol officers said, the ski industry was declining. It would be Jake Burton who would open both the chairlifts to the snowboarding community while simultaneously rescuing a flailing ski industry that was dead set on destroying the sport he founded. One by one, the number of ski resorts blacklisting snowboarders got shorter. Here again is Steve Hayes and Jake Burton. Over time, marketing managers said, you know, I believe Killington was one of the last holdouts in Vermont to, to allow snowboarding. And Killington marketing manager saw the name on a blacklist and they're like, geez, we can't have that. And actually, as the sport started to grow, the bottom line was these general managers could not be turning away dollars. There was a little bit of slump in the ski industry, and uh, this was one answer to fill in some of the voids that those guys were looking for extra revenue. So it was very, you know, it took a while before we got under resorts, and that was clearly a huge, you know, move in terms of growing the whole thing and sort of making it bigger. But it took a long time just to get there. As the sport grew, so did Burton's company. Burton has been one of the world's largest snowboard and snowboarding equipment manufacturers since the late 1980s. And Burton remains the pinnacle of sponsorship for snowboarders. Here's professional snowboarder Trevor Andrew. Oh, Jake is the man. Like, he's one of the realest people, you know. The riders to him, it seems like I've always... He's just considered them family, and he, he's just, since day one, you know, he's not the typical, like, owner of a huge company like that that you would expect, you know. He totally is, like, riding with you and just as stoked as everybody else about it. He's not, he's not all business. He's totally, like, loves snowboarding and loves the team, and that's just his thing. He's just, like, is so into it, and 
I guess that's what's brought him so much success, you know, is just because he has genuine love for the, for the sport. He's one of the pioneers. Here's pro snowboarder Keir Dillon. And you hear it all the time. It's, you know, Burton's corporate, and it's crazy to think that, that you're going to call the person that helped pioneer the sport, fought to get it in the mountains, made the R&D, invested so much money to bring it to where it is, you're going to call them corporate. It's like the best case scenario on the planet, you know, like the dude that it pretty much invented the sport, yeah, he's the corporate guy, it means he handled it and, and you have a dude that cares that much about snowboarding dictating where it goes. In 1998, less than a decade after Time Magazine called snowboarding the worst new sport, the International Olympic Committee sought it and the youthful audience it promised. Thanks to Burton, Snowboarding is now one of the most watched events at the Winter Olympics. Here's professional snowboarder and Olympic gold and silver medalist, Hannah Teeter. He just wants the best product, and that's what we all want, you know. That's why it's, Burton's like the rider-driven company, is because they're all about input from us you know they want it to look good but they want it to function more so at first i was like wow he's the boss like you know but he's just like a friend he's just chill and great he's just a down-to-earth guy it was, it's nice to have a boss like that. <laughs> not many people get nice bosses but we do here's three-time olympic gold medalist sean white this is honestly yeah. this is where i like to see sean backed into a little bit of a corner Oh my lord! How perfect can you possibly land? I don't know, I've never really felt like it. he was a boss ever. I don't know. It's been one of those things where he's just like, especially, I don't, I don't know if you've met him or not, but he's just like this really mellow, fun guy. He's like, you know, I think the first thing when we were hanging out, he made some joke about what some woman was wearing, you know what I mean? And I was so blown away by it that I, it caught me so off guard. I'm like, this guy rules, like he's all time. <laughs> Much has progressed since Burton initiated improvements to the snurfer, but the raw authenticity that formed the heart of the sport still remains. Here's Burton. Nobody's stopping snowboarders or, you know, from looking like NASCAR drivers, you know, and putting patches all over them and selling their, you know, themselves to everybody. I mean, that's not what people want to see. And that's kind of good. I mean, there is this sort of sense of couth that's associated with, I think, all board sports that we don't want to lose. And I think that um, that might keep things down a little bit, a little bit smaller. Hopefully it'll just sort of keep its scene. During his long tenure as one of snowboarding's true patriarchs, Jake's net worth is upwards of $100 million. 10 years after Jake founded Burton Snowboards, fewer than 7% of ski resorts even allowed snowboarding. But today, it's hard to find one that doesn't. Burton's Burlington, Vermont company, which he co-owns with his wife, Donna, remains the industry leader with five international offices and 845 employees. Not even Burton himself could have predicted this much success. I, I had no idea that what would happen with snowboarding. I mean, I saw a sport, but I did not see... Sean White on the cover of Rolling Stone twice, or snowboarding being in the Olympics, or um, the stuff that's happened. And it's been the athletes that have made it happen, and we've facilitated it, but it's been, uh, 
exceeded, um, I wouldn't even say dreams because I never dreamt anything on the level that we're on now. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a great story. We're smiling here in the studio. We're beaming because half the people who were quoted here sounded like they were stoners. But they started something new here in this country, a new sport, a new way of life, and they said no to the people in power. They challenged everybody from the owners of these resorts to Time Magazine itself, who said it was the worst new sport. Jake Burton's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, give us your email address, and we'll send you the five best segments a week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And all month, we've been playing commencement speeches. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And we'll get to some really bad ones tomorrow, we promise. We've already hit Robert De Niro at the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, Admiral McRaven at the University of Texas, General Pete Pace, the Farrelly Brothers, Russell Wilson, Justice Clarence Thomas, and our favorite student, commencement address nicholas brown at hillsdale college and these have occurred anywhere in the time span of this year back at least a decade and today we're bringing you three commencement speeches in the hour and the first one by one of my favorite writers if you ever get a chance read radical chic and mow mowing the fleck catchers by tom wolf and you know his other books bonfire of the vanities and the right stuff made into epic epic american movies Well, in 2005, he gave an address to the graduates at Washington and Lee University. Let's take a listen. In the workplace, in every market, everywhere in this country, you're going to come across waves and waves and waves of incompetence and irresponsibility. Um, It's going to be a shock, but it's also a great advantage uh, that that you're going to... uh, Uh, that you're going to have. And it's so true. And it does come in waves, and you're always shocked personally when you see incompetence or just laziness or stupidity. But it's everywhere. Tom Wolfe goes on to warn the graduates about some ills to be on the lookout for, including a vacuum, but not the type in your house. You're going to be coming out into a world um, that is very odd um, right now. I find it extremely strange. Every age has a moral tone that presses down upon everyone living in that period so strongly that you can't avoid it. You cannot avoid being influenced by the spirit of the age. And and I think of moral tone, one of the first things I think of is Paris Hilton. Um, Now... I, you know, it's rough being a fiction writer. I've written mostly nonfiction. I think I go back to it. It's rough writing uh, fiction novels in a a time like this. The problem with novels is 
they have to be plausible. Uh, nothing else does. But I don't think any novelist would have had the, uh, the wit, the imagination, to dream up a plot in which this hotel heiress gets all this wealth on her own because she made a pornographic tape. Without that tape, she'd be just another bold face in, in, the, in the gossip columns. Just, I mean, just think of that if you, if, you want to, if you want to think about moral tone. And of course, he was talking at the time about Paris Hilton. At, at what other time in history could you have released a porn tape and then became famous? Unbelievable. The moral tone. Tom Wolfe's talking about it back in 2005. It's just gotten a little bit worse, perhaps. Tom Wolfe then has some insight into our society because he's not a downer, Tom Wolfe. He actually sees this as an advantage for people with a moral compass. Here's some insight into our society for the graduates to reflect upon. Finally, there is what I think of as the authority vacuum. And I bet many of you have seen the authority vacuum in purpose, uh, in, in, uh, up front, uh, uh, in a very obvious way. The, kind, the way I've seen it is, here's parents. Your know, parents, I, I'm not kidding, have it a very rough time these days, but, uh, for many reasons. But the parent whose uh, child, could be male or female, I've seen both, uh, are, comes into the house about 11 o'clock at night with three or four friends, um, and they're all uh, smoking reefers. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and here, you know, my wife and I are guests in the house, and a couple of other people too. And so what do the parents do when they see this? They look at you and they go, oh, as if, you know, children. Uh, that's just, you know, you have, to, you have to put up with it. I mean, do you really have to put up with uh, four, four kids, three of whom you don't know, smoking dope in your house? I don't think you have to. That's what I call the authority vacuum. And people really are afraid to talk in a stern way uh, to, their, uh, to their children. It's so true. He was talking about, A, the moral vacuum, and then B, the authority vacuum. Let us rejoin Tom Wolfe with the conclusion of his address, and again to the folks at Washington and Lee University, as he reflects on an earlier speaker, and that earlier speaker had been Washington Washington Lee's college president, and what it is needed to be a successful person in life as these graduates enter the workforce. A moment ago, you heard some remarkable words, remarkable to my mind, from President Bush about character. It struck me so um, vividly because that is a word you do not hear in academia in the United States today. Character. The word makes people uneasy in so many campuses. Leadership, fine. They'll talk about leadership. They will not talk about character. Character might lead them to religion. It might lead them to ancient philosophy. Uh, It might lead where sophisticated secular people are just simply not uh, supposed to go. Uh, If there's one thing that Washington Lee, without really saying so, has guaranteed uh, every student, regardless of academic ability, it is a concentration on character, what makes good character, what makes a moral force, and I think in business, as I've talked about all these CEOs, 
the atmosphere of trust that is created by the emphasis on honor at Washington and Lee is something that can sweep an organization like wildfire. To have someone at the, at the head who radiates trust, who radiates honesty, and radiates uh, dependability. And it's so true. And our sponsors for our This Day in History at Hillsdale College, it's what it's all about to them. It's character, it's honor. And what that can do to any organization, any church, any family, any anything. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Commencement speeches for the hour. Coming up next, Steve Jobs and Denzel Washington. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Commencement speeches, we've been doing them all month. The good, the bad, the ugly. And by the way, if you want to hear a really terrible commencement speech, a Duke professor, we won't name his name because it's just mean. It was so bad, and it was so bad because he was so arrogant. And he was cracking jokes no one laughed at, and then when no one laughed, he got mad at the audience and insulted them. (laughs) (laughs) Just like a professor, of course. And he's not used to, by the way, having to deal with market forces. You see, when he has the kids as hostages and captives, they have to tell him what he wants to hear. But now he's talking in front of an entire audience, and oh my goodness, they don't laugh, and he can't fail them. And by the way, he was trying to flunk the audience. He was trying to give them an F, because they didn't buy his stupid jokes. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and scroll down to the Duke professor's commencement speech and get a laugh. I mean, we wanted to just put rim shots because you could hear crickets with every joke. And the guy didn't stop. He just kept going and going. And next we bring you, well, Steve Jobs' commencement speech at Stanford in 2005. And there aren't many careers like this giant's. And if you've read Walter Isaacson's book, you start it and you can't put it down. This was a deeply flawed man. This was a man who wasn't exactly a natural leader. Uh, wasn't exactly sweet and mild-mannered, but he drove his team hard, and he made some of the greatest products and innovated in ways that very few people did and created one of the most iconic companies in American history. And so let's hear how he addressed that class in 2005. Truth be told, uh, I never graduated from college, and... uh This is the closest I've ever gotten to a college graduation. (laughs) Today, I want to tell you three stories from my life. That's it. No big deal. Just three stories. The first story is about connecting the dots. I dropped out of Reed College after the first six months, but then stayed around as a drop-in for another 18 months or so before I really quit. So why'd I drop out? It started before I was born. My biological mother was a young, unwed graduate student, and she decided to put me up for adoption. 
She felt very strongly that I should be adopted by college graduates. So everything was all set for me to be adopted at birth by a lawyer and his wife. Except that when I popped out, they decided at the last minute that they really wanted a girl. So my parents, who were on a waiting list, got a call in the middle of the night asking, we've got an unexpected baby boy, do you want him? They said, of course. My biological mother found out later that my mother had never graduated from college and that my father had never graduated from high school. She refused to sign the final adoption papers. She only relented a few months later when my parents promised that I would go to college. And 17 years later, I did go to college. But I naively chose a college that was almost as expensive as Stanford. And all of my working class parents' savings were being spent on my college tuition. After six months, I couldn't see the value in it. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life and no idea how college was going to help me figure it out. So I decided to drop out and trust that it would all work out okay. It was pretty scary at the time, but looking back, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. The minute I dropped out, I could stop taking the required classes that didn't interest me and begin dropping in on the ones that looked far more interesting. Dropping out to drop in. And what we learn next is that what he dropped into would serendipitously change the course of his life. Reed College at that time offered perhaps the best calligraphy instruction in the country. Because I had dropped out and didn't have to take the normal classes, I decided to take a calligraphy class to learn how to do this. I learned about serif and sans serif typefaces, about varying the amount of space between different letter combinations, about what makes great typography great. It was beautiful, historical, artistically subtle in a way that science can't capture. And I found it fascinating. None of this had even a hope of any practical application in my life. But 10 years later, when we were designing the first Macintosh computer, it all came back to me. And we designed it all into the Mac. It was the first computer with beautiful typography. If I had never dropped in on that single course in college, the Mac would have never had multiple typefaces or proportionally spaced fonts. And since Windows just copied the Mac, it's likely that no person computer would have them. If I had never dropped out, I would have never dropped in on that calligraphy class, and personal computers might not have the wonderful typography that they do. Of course, it was impossible to connect the dots looking forward when I was in college, but it was very, very clear looking backwards 10 years later. You bet. And I would submit that that spatial relationship in the calligraphy is also a byproduct and is manifested in the beauty of all of the Apple products and their ease and simplicity of use. He didn't invent anything, not the first musical portable device. I think what he did was he, he made them more functional and more beautiful and easier to use. And even when you go into their retail stores, Apple stores are just beautiful. They're beautiful and they're simple and there's not a lot of product crammed into it. Lots of space. Let's rejoin Apple co-founder or Apple founder Steve Jobs as he shares the second of three stories with Stanford's graduating class. My second story is about love and loss. I was lucky. I found what I loved to do early in life. 
Waz and I started Apple in my parents' garage when I was 20. We worked hard, and in 10 years, Apple had grown from just the two of us in a garage into a $2 billion company with over 4,000 employees. We just released our finest creation, the Macintosh, a year earlier, and I just turned 30. And then I got fired. How can you get fired from a company you started? Well, as Apple grew, we hired someone who I thought was very talented to run the company with me. And for the first year or so, things went well. But then our visions of the future began to diverge, and eventually we had a falling out. When we did, our board of directors sided with him. And so at 30, I was out, and very publicly out. What had been the focus of my entire adult life was gone, and it was devastating. I really didn't know what to do for a few months. I felt that I had let the previous generation of entrepreneurs down, that I had dropped the baton as it was being passed to me. I met with David Packard and Bob Noyce and tried to apologize for screwing up so badly. I was a very public failure and I even thought about running away from the valley. But something slowly began to dawn on me. I still loved what I did. The turn of events at Apple had not changed that one bit. I'd been rejected, but I was still in love. And so I decided to start over. I didn't see it then, but it turned out that getting fired from Apple was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. The heaviness of being successful was replaced by the lightness of being a beginner again, less sure about everything. It freed me to enter one of the most creative periods of my life. During the next five years, I started a company named Next, another company named Pixar, and fell in love with an amazing woman who would become my wife. Pixar went on to create the world's first computer animated feature film, Toy Story, and is now the most successful animation studio in the world. In a remarkable turn of events, Apple bought Next, and I returned to Apple, and the technology we developed at Next is at the heart of Apple's current renaissance. And Lorene and I have a wonderful family together. I'm pretty sure none of this would have happened if I hadn't been fired from Apple. It was awful tasting medicine, but I guess the patient needed it. Sometime life, sometimes life's going to hit you in the head with a brick. Don't lose faith. I'm convinced that the only thing that kept me going was that I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love. And that is as true for work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. So keep looking. Don't settle. Getting fired, the best thing that ever happened to me. Steve Jobs, Stanford University. There are a couple of more clips from this great speech. And then Denzel Washington's speech a few years ago at Dillard University in Louisiana. More after these messages. Commencement Suite on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and it's commencement week, all week, and we're going to pick up where we left off with Steve Jobs describing at Stanford University in 2005 in his commencement address to the graduates there a third story that was a literal matter of life and death. My third story is about death. When I was 17, I read a quote that went something like, If you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. It made an impression on me, and since then, for the past 33 years, I have looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. Remembering that I'll be dead soon, is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. About a year ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. I had a scan at 7.30 in the morning, and it clearly showed a tumor on my pancreas. I didn't even know what a pancreas was. The doctors told me this was almost certainly a type of cancer that is incurable, and that I should expect to live no longer than three to six months. My doctor advised me to go home and get my affairs in order, which is doctor's code for prepare to die. It means to try and tell your kids everything. You thought you'd have the next 10 years to tell them in just a few months. It means to make sure everything is buttoned up so that it will be as easy as possible for your family. It means to say your goodbyes. And we just heard from Jobs about his pancreatic cancer diagnosis in 2003, but when he recovered in 2005, he wanted the Stanford graduates to consider what he had learned. Having lived through it, I can now say this to you with a bit more certainty than when death was a useful but purely intellectual concept. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet, (laughs) death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. And five years plus after this speech, Steve Jobs died, and far too young. And again, read Walter Isaacson's book on Jobs. It is really something. Once you start it, you will not be able to put it down. 
He really flushes out the full life and dimensions of this man's ups, downs, and particularly the personal dimensions are just really striking. And now it's on to Denzel Washington's 2015 speech at Dillard University. He also gave a terrific one at the University of Pennsylvania several years before that. And Denzel's been working on some things, and he's been talking about some things in public. But I'd sniff them out in some of his movies. And it first came about in Book of Eli. And if you haven't seen this movie, it stars Denzel and Gary Oldman. The Hughes brothers direct it. And it's a post-apocalyptic look at the world, and Denzel Washington has to transport, for some unknown reason, the last Bible to some unknown place. And Gary Oldman plays the bad guy who knows the power of this book and wants to get it. And it's, a, it's like a modern Western. And, and this was a personal movie for Denzel because he's a Christian. And uh, when Denzel finally does deliver this book, uh, it's at great personal expense, tremendous sacrifices. And here's the final prayer in Book of Eli. Dear Lord, thank you for giving me the strength and the conviction to complete the task you entrusted to me. Thank you for guiding me straight and true through the many obstacles in my path. And for keeping me resolute when all around seemed lost. Thank you for your protection and for your many signs along the way. Thank you for any good that I may have done. I'm so sorry about the bad. Thank you for the friend I made. Please watch over her as you watched over me. Thank you for finally allowing me to rest so very tired but I go now to my rest at peace knowing that I have done right with my time on this earth I fought the good fight I finished the race I kept the faith Denzel, of course, has won two Oscars and one for Glory as a supporting actor, one in Training Day. I really thought he should have won one one for this, too, and for another performance, I think, that may have been his best. And if you've seen the movie Flight, he plays an alcoholic, nasty pilot, but with remarkable talents, who saves a plane from almost certain destruction, but was under the influence and ultimately goes through a trial, and he could have gotten off, but at the very end he has this conversion, and he knows that he was a drunk, and he ultimately just confesses, and he's put away in prison. And finally he's able to reconcile with his family, 
And again, it's it's a faith movie. It's a faith message, but not a silly faith, not a rainbow and daisy faith, a hard one and a and a good one, and not not a kind of movie that there's a lot of proselytization in. And uh, let's take a listen to one of the final scenes in this terrific movie by Denzel. We're setting this up because this Dillard University speech is one that surprised a lot of people, but it didn't surprise us here at Our American Stories. Take a listen. At least I'm sober. I thank God for that. I'm grateful for that. And this is going to sound real stupid coming from a man who's locked up in prison. But for the first time in my life, I'm free. And you know that we've done that hour on Johnny Cash. And we know this about Johnny Cash, too. And so many of the great men that we adore and revere in this country, they're not out there on the ledge preaching every minute. But faith animates their life. And we like to talk about that here on Our American Stories. When we come back... Denzel Washington's remarkable commencement speech at Dillard University in Louisiana last year. More after these messages. our American stories and you're listening to Pomp and Circumstance just the part that you don't know because I didn't know I had to ask Jesse this is good what is it and he said it's later on in the song it's the part no one ever hears and that's why we're playing it for you and we're playing commencement speeches all month the entire month of May and this special hour we had Tom Wolfe and that's right Tom Wolfe of Bonfire and the Vanities and, and the right stuff one of my favorite novelists, one of America's great novelists, especially in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And then, of course, we heard from Steve Jobs. And now we're about to hear from Denzel Washington and what a career he's had. There's no need to dig into it except to say that you know his movies. And he's won two Oscars, and he also won a Tony for the play Fences in 2010. So the guy knows how to act on film and on the stage, and not many do. So now let's hear from him as he congratulates the class of Dillard University. Let's join him. Let me uh, take this moment to wholeheartedly congratulate each and every one of you today. You graduated. You did it. You made it. Congratulations to you. And you did it all by yourselves. Nobody helped you. No, that's not that's what You know, that's what I thought when I was... Uh, when I was young, I uh, starting to really make it as an actor. I came in, I talked to my mother. I said, Ma, did you think that 
this was going to happen, I'd be so big and I'll be able to take care of everybody and I can do this and I can do that and I can. She said, boy, stop it right there, stop it right there, stop it right there. He said, if you only knew how many people that had been praying for you, how many prayer groups she put together, how many prayer cloths she gave me, how many times she splashed me with holy water. <laughs> To save my sorry behind her, she said it. She said, oh, you did it by yourself? I tell you what you can do by yourself. You can go outside, get a mop and a bucket and wash them windows. You can do that by yourself, superstar. <laughs> you can do that by yourself, superstar. And let's rejoin Denzel as he talks about something you don't hear often from Hollywood actors. Put God first. Put God first in everything you do. Everything that you think you see in me, everything that I've accomplished, everything that you think I have, and I have a few things, everything that I have is by the grace of God. Understand that. It's a gift. Indeed. And now we hear about what real success in life is to Denzel and the meaning of money. You'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. I don't care how much money you make, you can't take it with you. The Egyptians tried it. They got robbed. That's all they got. You can't take it with you, with you. And it's not how much you have. It's what you do with what you have. We all have different talents. Some of you will be doctors, some lawyers, some scientists, some educators, some nurses. Some teachers, yeah, okay. <laughs> Some preachers. The most selfish thing you can do in this world is help someone else. Why is it selfish? Because the gratification, the goodness that comes to you, the good feeling, the good feeling that I get from helping others, nothing's better than that. Well, one or two things, but nothing's better than that. Not, not jewelry, not big house I have, not the cars, but the, the, it's the joy. That's where the joy is in helping others. That's where the success is in helping others. And here is Denzel Washington's address to the students at Dillard University. Again, this was last year. He's going to touch on a common theme we have heard in many of our commencement speeches, and that is the topic of failure. Fail big. That's right. Fail big. Today is the beginning of the rest of your life, and it can be, it can be very frightening. It, it's a new world out there. It's a mean world out there, and you only live once. So do what you feel passionate about, passionate about. Take chances professionally. Don't be afraid to fail. There's an old IQ test was nine dots, and you had to draw five lines with a pencil within these nine dots without lifting the pencil. The only way to do it was to go outside the box. So don't be afraid to go outside the box. Don't be afraid to think outside the box. Don't be afraid to fail big, to dream big. But remember, dreams without goals are just dreams. And they ultimately fuel disappointment. 
So have dreams, but have goals, life goals, yearly goals, monthly goals, daily goals. I try to give myself a goal every day. Sometimes it's just to not curse somebody out. <laughs> Simple goals, but have goals. And understand that to achieve these goals, you must apply discipline and consistency. In order to achieve your goals, you must apply discipline, which you have already done, and consistency every day, not just on Tuesday and miss a few days. You have to work at it every day. You have to plan every day. You've heard the saying, we don't plan to fail, we fail to plan. Hard work works. Working really hard is what successful people do. And in this text, tweet, twerk world that you've grown up in, <laughs> remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Indeed, and here is the conclusion of Denzel Washington's commencement speech at Dillard University. Let's take a listen. Finally, I pray that you put your slippers way under the bed tonight so that when you wake up in the morning, you have to get on your knees to reach them. And while you're down there, say thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you in advance for what's already yours. That's how I live my life. That's why I, one of the reasons why I am today. Say thank you in advance for what is already yours. True desire in the heart for anything good is God's proof to you sent beforehand to indicate that it's yours already. I'll say it again. True desire in the heart, that itch that you have, whatever it is you wanna do, that thing that you wanna do to help others and to, to grow and to make money, that desire, that itch, that's God's proof to you. Sit beforehand already to indicate that it's yours. And again, you're not going to hear that commencement speech from many actors, though there are a lot more people in Hollywood that share this view than people know. And I know a few myself. And by the way, you can go to certain churches in Hollywood and you can see them. Certain Catholic churches where you can see Gary Oldman going in all the time. He was the co-actor in Book of Eli. Not not public and not out there in a in a in a, in a public way, but just a private way. Uh, so you know, don't don't count out all the folks in Hollywood. You'll never hear the words "Holly Weird" here on our American stories. Lots of good people there trying to do good work. And on our American stories, we love to talk about Bob Dylan, about Barbara Streisand. We did a great hour on both of them. Very different artists from very different places. My goodness, you couldn't be more different from different actual places, Minnesota and Brooklyn. 
and yet the impact these two people had on music world, you have to do both. And it's very different kinds of music. On our American stories, we do that. We honor the people of this country, secular and Christian and, well, Jewish and atheist. No difference to us. And just celebrating what's good and decent in the country. And we'll have more commencement addresses uh, in the coming days, and particularly the really bad ones. We promised you them, and we're hunting them down. And again, the Duke University professors, please again go to it. And may, we may just have a few highlights from it one more time because it's just so wretched and it's so funny. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And take a listen to all of it. And here's Pomp and Circumstance again. We start and end at the same place. More after these messages. Again, this is Lee Habib, Our American Stories. <laughs> 